but I'll just pray. So Heavenly Father, we do just thank you that um, you indeed are great and good God. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we do look into your word, I pray that um, I am able to speak uh, truthfully and helpfully. And um, Lord, anything I do say that is, that is not truthful and helpful may it be chaff in the wind. Amen. As a, as a, a, a Scottish blogger, um, David Robertson, he hates the movie Braveheart. He hates it because of its historical inaccuracies and I, th- I think he's never even watched it. But in, in Mel Gibson's movie, um, the, the character William Wallace, for those who don't know the movie, he basically... Um, Scotland is divided between the clans, England rules, and um, uh, so, so Mel Gibson's character actually unites the clans and, and, and basically tries to kick out England. But there's a couple of points in the movie that, that, are, that sort of struck me and, and, and um, I just want to mention. One is there's one point where a battle's just been won and, and Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace, is chasing this English lord on horseback across the, the fields. Anyway, he catches him, rips his helmet off, and it's actually Robert the Bruce, one of the own, his own Scottish lords, who's betrayed him. And so he's just devastated by this. All hope is lost. And um, towards the end of the movie, at the climax of the movie, um, again, the Scottish lords actually conspire, and um, it's through them that they're actually able to capture William Wallace in the end. So... What, what actually happens is that the external threat of the English, despite how powerful they are, um, he's able to hold them off and actually hold his own against them. What brings him down in the end is the internal stuff, the, 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 the conspiracies, the complacency, the, 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 the evils within the, the people around him. And that's a little bit like where we find Habakkuk. So as, as for Habakkuk himself, we actually don't know very much about him. He's only ever mentioned in his own book. Um, so, but he, but he, he starts off straight away into his prophecy and rather than God speaking to a prophet, this is, this is the prophet Habakkuk speaking directly to God. He's bringing him his complaint. And his complaint and his questions are, are pretty much timeless and they're as relevant to us today as it was to his original hearers. So for those unfamiliar with Habakkuk and where he might fit, just um, I'll try to set the scene a bit. So after the heights of King David and then Solomon, Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, he refuses to listen to his people and so the kingdom's actually divided into two. You have Judah and Benjamin in the south with Jerusalem still at the centre and the rest of the tribes forming, sorry, the rest of Israel forming the northern tribes. Now the northern tribes, after ignoring continued warnings from God about what would happen if they continue to disobey, um, they're, they're conquered by the Assyrians, the Assyrians in 722 BC and, and are pretty much wiped out from history. And for the southern kingdom, for, for Judah and Benjamin, again after continued warnings, Babylon invades them three times actually, but then finally in 586 BC when Israel is is carted off into captivity. So from the text of Habakkuk itself, it seems that the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, as Habakkuk calls them, that that they're a threat, but that threat is not quite so imminent yet. And so the invasion of Jerusalem still seems like it's a little bit away. Um, So so some decades before the Babylonian invasion, um, King Josiah reigns, and he's, for those of you who are aware of all the kings, he was one of the good kings. So in 
in the book of Second Kings, chapter 23, we read how he restores the temple, um, destroys the Baal and Asherah idols, restores Passover, but then he's actually killed in a battle um, by the Egyptians not long after that. But after Josiah come three kings, um, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. Now, none of these guys reign for all that long, but they're all recorded as, in doing, as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's not long after that that, that, that um, Jerusalem finally falls. But as for Habakkuk, it is quite possible that he actually saw the reforms of Josiah and then the descent into evil of the next three kings. Um, so this is, this is how Habakkuk opens his book then in, in seeing what's going on around him. So if you have your Bibles there, uh, we'll start off, I'll just read the first um, four verses of chapter one at this stage. So the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you... Excuse me. And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralysed and justice never goes forth. For the the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Excuse me. In most of our versions, as, as I just read out, this is introduced as the Oracle of Habakkuk. In the King James... Instead of oracle, it's the burden of Habakkuk. And the Hebrew word actually means pretty much the same thing. It has those those joint meanings to it. So this is a burden. This is something that's weighing down on him. It's a struggle to him. And the way he talks here, it reinforces to us, as with other parts of the Bible, that we're invited to bring our concerns to the Lord. God knows us. He knows what we want and he he wants us to come to him. Um, We have freedom of access to him. Habakkuk knows that God's invites, God invites him to come and pour out his heart to him. And of course, this is our ongoing invite too. As his children, he wants us to come to him, to lay our cares on him. And this is us acknowledging our dependence on him as well. So, so back to verse 2. Habakkuk starts off with, O Lord. In the rich, as, as you can see, it's in the small capital. So as, as you'll be aware, this is actually Yahweh. So this is a covenant name for God among his people. In using this term, Habakkuk is pleading to the covenant God, the promise-keeping God, and asking asking him why he's apparently not keeping his promises. You are a God who will not allow evil. So how long will will you allow this evil among your people? This is a cry of desperation. How long and you do not hear? I cry to you and you will not save. How long is a common phrase in the Bible. Um, We see it in the Psalms and also in Revelation. And the people of God often come to him with this cry of how long? How long will you let this injustice continue? As you scan through verses 2 and 3, Habakkuk, you you see a list of the sort of things he's talking about. Violence, iniquity, wrongdoing, destruction, violence again, strife and contention. These are the things that Habakkuk is burdened by. These are the things that are causing his complaint to God. And these things are being committed by God's own chosen people. If you go back through Second Kings, you get an idea of the type of things that people are doing. They're worshipping the Baal and Asherah idols. God's temple has been profaned. There's cult prostitutes. There's child sacrifice. People are held in slavery. And the rich are using their power and position to exploit, abuse and pervert justice. Now in verse 4, there's a suggestion that there's a remnant 
of the righteous, but they're well outnumbered by the wicked. No wonder Habakkuk is appalled and he cries out, Lord, Lord, why do you sit back and see these things and not save? Why do you idly sit back and see all this wrong and do nothing? Aren't you the good God, the just and holy God? Why do you sit back and tolerate all this evil and sin? Not only that, but in verse 4, the law, the Mosaic law, is paralysed. It's unable to act. It's having no impact on the hearts and lives of God's chosen people. Injustice is rampant and justice is perverted. People are going around doing their own thing without fear or favour. And in the words of judges, everyone was doing right what was right in his own eyes. They have abandoned God in his ways. Now don't forget that these issues aren't external. This is not the Assyrians, the Egyptians or even the Babylonians. But the evil that Habakkuk sees is being done by his own people, by God's chosen nation. Throughout the history of Israel, we see this repeated time and time again. And we forget, oh sorry, and, and God's people forget forget him and turn from his ways and they're overcome by outside forces. The problem is that they become complacent and presumptuous. So we'll just turn to Deuteronomy 11, briefly. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So chapter 11 and verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord, of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I'm commanding you today, to go after no other gods that you have not known. So the problem here is that the people of these people are choosing only to believe God's blessings to them, but they're refusing to believe or acknowledge that God also promises them cursing if they, if they abandon him. God's people are wanting to live independent, independent from him, living life in their own ways and ignoring God and his promises. Looking at these verses, I kept thinking of 1 Peter, so I'll make a turn there now, just to be... Okay, so 1 Peter, chapter 2, just to make you flick through your Bibles. So 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. As Israel was to be God's light in the world, so too was the church, so too are we. We are called to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Now before I go any further, we need to be careful here. So Habakkuk is written to a particular people at a particular time in history and in a specific context. So we need to understand this before we extrapolate too much. But verse 5, which I'll get to shortly, um, is quoted by Paul in Acts 13. I'll read that out to you so you don't have to turn. Um, so yeah, Paul's in, in Antioch preaching to the Jews and again he here he's speaking to at a specific point in time to specific people. But this is what verse 5 says. Beware therefore, lest what he said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. 
For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if no one tells you. Again, not forgetting the context of these verses, where where he's actually warning the Jews here who reject Christ. But as Christians today, do we dare risk this warning? Do we risk becoming complacent and presumptuous on on God's promises, just as the Jews had done? As we'll get to shortly, what God is about to do is to punish his people. For us today, God still disciplines us and... um, you can look this up later but um, um, Hebrews 12 it talks there about God's discipline but again we need to be careful how we apply this we can't point to someone for example and say your illness is is God's judgment on you but the point is is that um, in these things even if we don't understand them God is drawing us to himself he's drawing us to make us a holy nation But the New Testament books do spend some time warning us to purge out our ungodly beliefs and behaviour. So if you'd like to flick back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So 1 Corinthians 5 starting at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would have no need to go out of the world but now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one like Levin, if sin is left unchecked it will spread through the church we are clearly instructed to repent from evil, to purge evil from our churches. Um, and not to, not to do so is to become complacent like Israel did. As I was doing this, I'm aware that, that, that um, I'm not trying to bring up any specifics, I'm aware that there's, there's sort of issues in the background here, so um, I don't have an ulterior motive in saying some of these things, so, so please don't read anything into this that I'm not trying to say. Um, but around us, in this country, in this state, and even in this town, we have churches that, that, that continue to support ungodly beliefs and behaviour. You don't have to look too far to, suffice, to find support in the church for abortion, euthanasia, um, teaching kids that they're not their own gender, and gay marriage. I know of one woman in Sale who was sacked uh, for supporting traditional marriage leading up to the plebiscite. So while some Christians are losing their jobs or upholding a biblical view of things, at the same time, other Christians are capitulating to the culture and denying God and his word. Contempt for God's word and his ways have crept into the church. When I was at university um, on the mid to late last decade, Christian bashing was quite popular and generally quite rightly. Um, they off, people often talked about the abuses and corruptions of the church, the perversion of justice, and um, as, as an example, the atrocious treatment of, of um, some of the Aboriginal people, particularly in the missions. 
But after listening to this for some time, I actually became aware that where people were talking about this was actually where the church had stopped being the church and were actually following the culture around them. What, what our culture has forgotten is that there were true Christians out there doing some marvellous things in this example for the Aboriginal people. I saw a documentary, I'm thinking it was on ABC even, that had these two elderly ladies, two Aboriginal ladies, and uh, basically they were thanking God for the mission stations because when there was drought and famines, they could find food and water. When there was either tribal warfare or strife within a tribe, people could go to these places for safety. Um, And not forgetting that quite a lot of Aboriginal people did become Christians. But those are the things that we forget. What what is remembered is the abuses that the church has done. So because of that, the whole church is, is, is denigrated because, of, because some parts of the church were basically corrupt and given up on, on um, Christian ideals. And I can't help but wonder, in 20, 20 or 30 years' time, I suspect there's going to be a royal commission because you're going to have all these kids today who are, you know, some not even teenagers, who are taking puberty blockers because they're, you know, confused about their gender. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, you know, in 20 or 30 years' time, the church is blamed because it supported those moves. Hopefully I'm wrong. But yeah, just flick across to Acts 20. So Acts 20. I think I'm in the right place. Yep, okay, Acts 20, starting at verse 26. Therefore, I testify, you to, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has been made an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The biggest threat we often face is the internal threats. Um, The world can assail the church from outside, but often it's the damage that's done from the inside that can cause us problems. And... um, Earlier, when I was talking about, you know, pointing to other churches about their ungodly behaviour, we can't forget, well, hang on, what about me? What about my ungodly behaviour? And where have I shown contempt for God's word? Where have I been complacent? You know, what about my pride, my greed, my lack of love? And all this is sinful and evil too. So I've got to remember, we've got, well, I have to remember, we have to remember, that this is often not about pointing at other people, but it's also about thinking about uh, myself as well. So anyway, back to Habakkuk. And we'll read on from verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, 
Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather up captives like the sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So with Habakkuk's question, God doesn't leave him hanging. He answers him. Um, But not in a way that Habakkuk expects. Wonder and be astounded. This is going to shock you. He's, He's bringing in violent people to do his work. But notice here that God is fully in control. He says, I am doing a work in your days. I am raising up the Chaldeans. God is ordering the actions of kings and nations for his will. This is his doing. And we shouldn't think that random forces are running our lives in the universe. This is the providence of God. We often sit back seeing what's going on in the world around us and wonder, where is God? But this passage reminds us that God is indeed in control. Even if, we, if, even if we struggle to understand it. So the Babylonian army is promised that they will come. And the description he gives here is reminiscent of a blitzkrieg. They were a well-resourced and powerful army who will just sweep through everything in their path. And remember Habakkuk's original complaint, the violence he was seeing among his own people. So what's God's answer? More violence. God answers he's going to react, going to act, but not by renewal or revival, but by violence. These bitter, dreaded, fearsome people are going to pour in like wolves and eagles and devour you. Hardly the wanted and expected answer from God. And the people, they're helpless. Like a kid gathers, like a kid on the beach gathers and moves and moulds the sand wherever he wants, so are the people against the Chaldeans. And kings and rulers and fortresses are all nothing to them. They have, the, the Chaldeans have no regard for people who are smaller and weaker than they are. And in verse 11, God, God acknowledges that these are guilty men, that these are evil men, that they're arrogant in their own might and power, and that he is going to use them to deal with the corruption of his people. He's going to use them to purge and cleanse his people. And this is the answer to Habakkuk's complaint. So as I mentioned earlier, we need to be very careful about how we think about, think about and apply these verses. Um, it's one thing to look at a Bible passage and clearly see, well, see events labelled as God's judgment or punishment. Um, and it's another thing to point at something else and say this is God's punishment as well. Um, and an example that might be a bit too simplistic, um, many, many years ago when Sydney had its first gay Mardi Gras, it actually rained. And some well-known, a well, I won't name him, but a well, if I said his name, you'd all know him, but a well-known Christian said, oh, there you go, there, there's God's judgment on the gay Mardi Gras. That may well have been, but, but the organisers of the event said, well, hang on, so you're telling us that God cares more about raining on a few drag queens while you've got people starving in famine, drought-stricken Africa. So I guess what I'm saying is we just need to be very careful on how we think about and apply these things. And also not forgetting that in many countries and throughout history, faithful, godly people have been lambs of the slaughter. But the point here, I think, is clear. God will not put up with evil. And while we may not understand what is going on, God has his plans and is working and is in control. 
So we'll continue on with Habakkuk from verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as, as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For them... he. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. So God was right. Habakkuk is astounded at his answer. Habakkuk starts off with good sound theology. He acknowledges that God's eternal and he calls him my God and my Holy One, again emphasising that, that personal relationship that he and we have with him. And Habakkuk knows that God is our rock, he's our security and our stability. Habakkuk also acknowledges that what God has, has ordained, that he's sending the Chaldeans, that he is in control and that he's doing this for reproof, to punish and to reprimand Judah. But... Habakkuk again brings his confusion, his complaint to God. How can a pure, holy, all-powerful God punish wickedness by using those who are even more wicked? This just makes no sense, and we can sympathise. If you were living in France in the 1930s and saying, God, France is a wicked nation, and he says, it's okay, I'm about to send in the Nazis, you'd be thinking, this is nuts, it just doesn't make sense. In verse 14, um, just as fish and crawling things act like instinct, act by instinct and have no ruler or judge, this is how it seems that God has made man. They just do what they want without fear or concern. They just doing, they just do anything wrong, and they just they just act without thinking. It seems. Um, and some of the explanation that follows, it looks like a bit of a mixed metaphor. So he talks about people being caught by hooks and by nets like fish. But there's also reliefs showing captives with hooks through their nose and kept in nets. But the point is here, the people have um, no hope of escape. They're, they're, they're basically done. In verse 17, Habakkuk returns to, to a question. He asks if God will just allow this pitiless, merciless killing just to go on. And um, while, it's not just, while it's not directly related, for those of you who get the... Um, some of you will get the Barnabas Fund email. Um, so Barnabas Fund is a charity to places that um, to Christians who do suffer persecution in the world. Um, so this is the one to come this week. I won't read all of it, I'll just read this little part. So in Nigeria, just, just reading it out. When a marked security car passed a boys and girls brigade group marching in an Easter parade in a, in a city in Nigeria... No one thought much about it as the driver briefly drew alongside the people and seemed to call out a few words to them. Then suddenly the car turned and sped back towards the boys and girls as they marched, cruelly ploughing through them from behind. Just moments before the tragedy unfolded, they had been joyfully marching in celebration of their Saviour's resurrection. Um, in all, 13 children died in that one little event. 
And if you get these emails, there's several other events here and they come out fairly regularly. So this violence is just going on. Um, and so this is the question that we often ask. You know, why do the God, why do these things go on? This idea that a just and holy God would use wicked people and, and seemingly to accomplish his purposes. Just flick with me to Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The most violent act in history the murder and crucifixion of God's only pure and holy son by lawless and by wicked men. This is the quintessential example of the wicked and violent crushing the righteous. And this actually resulted in the ultimate good. What happened on the cross was the ultimate good. This was all part of God's plan. But through it, God was using wicked and evil people. Habakkuk in, in, in um, chapter 2 verse 1 he waits like a lookout on his watchtower he will wait on the Lord for his answer and I can't help but think there's a, there's a level of trust here even though his complaint is not really answered you can't stand and patiently wait like this if you don't have trust and faith and the last one Revelation chapter 6 So chapter 6, starting at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here the slain martyrs are crying out to God how long, just as Habakkuk did. And notice that God's answer is in effect more violence. They're told to wait until the number of those killed is to, com is to be complete. But notice there's a concern for them here too. They're to put on the white robe, the robe of victory and purity, and, and told to rest. They can rest because God is working out his plans. We may not understand it, we may be confused, grieved and frustrated by it, but God is in control and unfolding history according to his plan. And so, like Habakkuk, we are told to patiently wait. Now, I'll mostly end here, I won't go on to the next section, but we'll briefly touch on um, Habakkuk to four, the righteous shall live by faith. So while Habakkuk patiently waits, he's been told to live by faith. And so there's two ways to look at this, and this is living in dependence on God, so we depend on him, not our wealth, not our success, not our smarts or our jobs. But it's also a call to faithfulness, 
Because God is trustworthy. Even when life's at its darkest, when we see struggles and suffering and pain, I can approach my Lord God, my Holy One, and pour out my concerns and know that he's listening, regardless of what's going on around us. And so the righteous... And so the righteous are to to live by faith. Because we look around us and wonder, and we are astounded, Christians are hated and even slaughtered for being faithful. And while we do see some liberal churches dying, and we might think that's God's judgment, um, we also see, um, for example, churches that that boast a prosperity gospel that are, are growing and raking in millions. And at the same time, we see faithful churches that are struggling and dying themselves. So sometimes we just sit back and we do wonder what's going on and it can be easy to get discouraged. But Habakkuk reminds us that in all of this we can bring our worries and confusions and doubts to God. He is listening. And importantly, that through all this, he is in control and he is acting. So from our finite perspective, we may not understand it, but we are to call on him and wait. We are to patiently wait for our faithful, trustful, promise-keeping God. If he can plan for and use the evil of the cross to work out the ultimate good, then we can trust him that he's using the circumstances around us for good as well. And for us, we are to remain faithful and not become complacent, not to lose hope, but we are to trust in him and to patiently wait as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like all generations of Christians, we do live in confusing and troubled times. So Lord, help us to remember to to focus on you, that you are indeed good and love us. That though we may not understand, that you are in control, that you're ordering the world. So Lord, we pray that you help us to trust you and to live by faith. In Christ's name, amen.